Take your Bibles again, if you would, and turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Let us give attention as we read God's word this morning once again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from his, all his work. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Amen. Let's, uh, let's bow this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we could gather today. Lord, we uh, always need to hear from you. God, we always need you to, to, to speak to us. We are a people who oftentimes forget. It's, it's amazing how many times your words your word says, remember, remember, and you point us back to those things that we have said. And I pray that this morning that you would do the same and that, God, you would uh, unstop our ears. Lord, there are many things that are going on in our lives, many things that are on our minds and uh, uh, vying for our attention. But, Lord, I pray that today that your spirit would speak to us and, Lord, that we would turn our ears and our hearts to you to receive that and to walk in obedience to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, my family and I are watching Ligonier ministry teaching videos uh, for our family worship. And it's just truly been a blessing to us to listen to different uh, ministers teach on, on God's word. And uh, currently we're working our way through a series entitled The Life of Samson, which I would highly recommend to you. It's done by Bob Godfrey. He's just a phenomenal teacher. 
But in that series, he makes this observation, which just really struck me as I heard it. He said this. He goes, one of the faults of the people of God, one of the faults of the people of God is to want more information than God has given us. That we want more information than God has given us. And he goes, and our problem is not that we lack the information we need. The problem is we don't act on the information we have. And boy, that's so true, is it not? Especially when we're in times of uncertainty. You know, times when, when life is just sort of in turmoil and we feel like things are, are out of control. I'm guessing that for many of us, even going through this pandemic, it has been a really difficult time. And we just think, Lord, if you would just, you know, let me know how long this is going to last. I, I think I can make it. Lord, if you will, you know, just give me the answers to this. Or Lord, you know, if, you, if I just knew this, then I would know how to handle this. Or, or Lord, I can follow my gut instinct and I, I think I could get through this. But God doesn't give us all the answers that we want. As a matter of fact, God wants us to trust him and that which he has revealed in his word. And, and so he wants us to look to him for hope. So he doesn't maybe tell us everything we want, but he tells us everything that we need. And all we have to do is to act on that which he has told us. Well, the people that the writer to the Hebrews is writing to is, is a lot like us. They're, they're not really much different at all. I mean, they're going through persecution and suffering, and I'm sure they had questions as well, just like we do today. Lord, why? Lord, how long? And maybe many other questions. And while the Bible is not silent about issues of persecution and oppression and trials and, and things like that, it does not always give us all the answers that we want during these difficult times. And so what happens is, is that we end up wrestling with God rather than resting in God. And today in our passage, as we come to chapter four, this idea of rest is really important to the author. As a matter of fact, you'll see it repeated over and over and over and over. And, and it's really not just in this chapter, but even in chapter three, we see this idea of rest, but particularly here in, in chapter four. But, but the rest that he's speaking of is not just simply entrusting the Lord while here upon this earth, but it, it's something much greater than that. And so I want us to look at this, this theme of, of rest this morning. And specifically, I want us to look at, at the answers of, of three questions that I think this text um, addresses this morning. And the first is, why did the Israelites not enter God's rest? Now, we, we, we sort of talked about this a little bit last week, and so we'll, we'll just touch on it briefly. But why did the Israelites not enter God's rest? Second of all, what is God's rest? I mean, you can get through the end of this passage and you think, now, what, what, well, what is the rest? And so we'll look at that. And then finally, why must we strive to enter God's rest? So let's look this morning. Why did the Israelites not enter God's rest? Well, if you look back at the end of chapter 3, the last two verses of chapter 3, we read, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? That is God's rest. But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
Well, unbelief uh, really shut God's people out from his rest. We see the same thing in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, For good news came to us, just as to them. In other words, the gospel came to the Hebrews, just as it came to the Israelites in the Old Testament. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So, He's, he's saying to these Hebrews, your troubles is not what you think it is. You think that the troubles that you're having in your life is persecution and it is opposition. But I'm here to tell you that really your trouble is unbelief. You see, unbelief is the root of all of our troubles in this life. Without exception. Unbelief is the root of all of our troubles in this life without exception. I mean, just think about Jesus. What, what were the words he spoke to his disciples over and over and over? Situation after situation where the circumstances where they found themselves seemed to be beyond their control. And they had no answer for what it was that they were facing. What did Jesus say to them? Oh, you of little faith, right? He would say to them. You know, be that in situations where they needed bread to, to feed the multitudes, whether they were healing the sick or, or they were struggling to, to cast out demons. Whatever it was that the disciples were facing and doubting, Jesus knew that their problem was unbelief. And, and that's why he challenged them to constantly have faith in God. You see, the tragedy of unbelief is that it separates itself from the object of faith, that is, from God. Let me say that again. That, that the tragedy of unbelief is that it separates itself, it separates us from the object of our faith, that is, from God. And let me try to explain that statement, if I could. Turn, if you would, with me to Numbers chapter 13. Uh, we looked at this passage, or referred to this passage at least a little bit last week, but I want to return to it to, to help us to, to see how this works itself out. Uh, while you're turning there to Numbers 13, uh, the Israelites now have been camped on the border of the Promised Land for 40 days. And they're waiting for the spies to come back, and the spies finally do. And, and as they do, the 10 of the 12 spies give this report about how the land is, is really good. I mean, really good. As a matter of fact, they even brought samples back. And they showed the, the people, you know, the, the wonderful fruit and stuff. And, uh, but then they go on. And the ten spies say this in verse 28 of Numbers 13. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And, and, and as the people hear this, we look down in uh, chapter 14, the first three verses, and the Israelites, they says that the congregation raised a loud cry. The people wept. And they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they're like, whoa, why did you bring us out here to die? Why not just leave us in Egypt? Because, see, God had promised that he was going to bring his people into the promised land. And now they knew that that wasn't going to happen. Why? Because of the report of these spies. The circumstances were shut, stuff that it was not going to happen. And so the ten spies and the Israelites acted in unbelief. 
And see, that's what unbelief does. Unbelief in God takes our focus off of what off of Him as the object of our faith. You know, whenever we refer to faith, sometimes people that are not Christians, when they're talking about the Christian faith, will refer to faith as a blind faith. And oftentimes that's what people think. You're just having faith in faith. But that's not true for the Christian. For the Christian, there is an object of our faith. And that is God. We have faith in God. We trust because of the character of God. Because of who he is. But when there is unbelief, even in the life of the believer, it separates us from that object. Our eyes are no longer upon God himself, but instead it reduces our focus to the circumstances that are all around us. And so unbelief separates itself from the object of faith. Now, Take that and contrast that with the faith of Caleb and Joshua. You know, Caleb, here's the report of these ten spies and the, the nation of Israel. They just crying out, weeping, oh, Lord. And Caleb, his response, if you look at chapter 13, verse 30, he's like, hey, let's go take the land. We can occupy it. And he says, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, you might think he just thinks a lot about his military capability, but that's not true. If you look down in chapter 14, verse 8, you see really where his hope is. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. You see, for, for Caleb, his focus was on the object of his faith. And so what it did was it caused him to take his eyes off his circumstances and to focus upon the object of his faith. And that's the difference between unbelief and, and faith. But, but the congregation wasn't there. And they responded in unbelief. As a matter of fact, they were going to stone Moses and Aaron and, and um, Joshua and, and Caleb. But the Lord inter intervened on, on behalf of them. But see, brothers and sisters, because of this whole dynamic of, of unbelief, that's why we cannot too often tell ourselves that the great issue of faith is not its quality, but its object. I mean, too often we're, we're guilty of thinking that we are struggling because our faith is too weak or our faith is too small. You know, and, and maybe you have found yourself, and I mean, how often probably, how we, that would be a better way to ask, how often have we found ourselves asking things like, Lord, why am I wrestling in my faith? Why am I struggling? Lord, what am I doing wrong? I mean, think about how many times you have been tempted to, to ask such questions during this whole time of pandemic and, and as, as your life is being just turned upside down. But the reality is, it's not the quality of our faith, but it's the fact that we have lost the object of our faith. You see, faith looks outward. It does not look inward. And where we might be tempted to look inward and to say, what's wrong with me? Really, faith drives us outward to look and to see who our God is. So it is in those circumstances that, that the Lord comes to us in the midst of these circumstances. And he says, consider me. See who I am. The one in whom your faith resides. 
And that's what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to do to his congregation, is for them to keep their eyes upon the Lord. Because the Israelites, because of the Israelites' unbelief, they didn't enter into God's rest. They were excluded from it. Unbelief in God, that is his character, unbelief in his promises. They began to doubt God's goodness like Satan did in the garden with with Adam and Eve, questioning God's character and even questioning his promises as well. I believe there are many Christians today, and, and I'll say especially amongst young people, but that's not really exclusively amongst young people. I'll explain in a minute why I say that. But that question God's character and promises because God doesn't, does not do for them what they think he should do. That, that they come to God with expectations that he doesn't meet or he doesn't meet it the way that they think he should. And so they write him off. And I don't think that that's a problem just with youth. Like I said, I don't think it's exclusive to youth. But, but I see that many young people have grown up in a church where the church has you know, sought to, to grow, to have more people come. And so many churches have sought to put the focus upon how we can meet the needs of the congregation. And unfortunately, I think in, in the modern day American church, we have even changed the gospel message to fit that as well. And so when many people, young people come to faith in Jesus Christ, they come at it from the perspective that God is here for their sake. He is here to bless them. He is there to meet their needs. And so they think that it's all about me, even the gospel, rather than seeing what, what God is doing is seeking to bring glory to himself. Does that bless us? Amen. It does. God has blessed his people tremendously, but it's not all about us. And see, what is at the, the heart of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. I mean, what's that sort of that golden thread that sort of runs throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation? Is it not where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people? You know, God on oath commits himself to his people, but not as their slave, but as their God. But unbelief questions the character of God often and doubts the promises of God. And so, the, the writer is saying to these Hebrew Christians, unbelief is your problem. And, and maybe we need to hear that today. Maybe we are struggling with particular issues in our lives. Maybe we're wrestling with questions. And we need to be reminded to have faith in God. Not just to have faith, but to have faith in the object of your faith and that is in God. God who has revealed himself to us. God who is the triune God. God who is the covenant making God and the covenant keeping God. The faithful God who has proven himself over and over and over to his people. God does not lie, but is faithful to his promises. So he calls us to place our faith in him, to focus on him as the object of our faith. And so that's the, the first thing that we see. The second question we want to look at is, is what is this rest that uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about? Now I'm going to go ahead and just give you the answer, uh, but then we'll unpack it a little bit and talk about it. God's rest 
is his present reign of glory and grace in heaven. That's it. It's, it's his present, his current reign, his current rule of glory and grace in heaven. Now, the, the writer to the Hebrews, he talks about what it's not and what it is a little bit more to, to sort of unpack this for us. But uh, first of all, what it's not, you know, we know that the rest that God promises his people is still available today. Uh, look at verse one. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. In other words, it's still available. It's, it's still a thing, you know, that God promises rest to his people. So what that means is for these Hebrew Christians is they think back that what God was promising to the Israelites in the promised land was, was really not the end all of God's rest. Uh, that the Israelites, as they entered under Joshua's leadership, it was not the ultimate rest that God was promising. As a matter of fact, it was just a type. It was just a picture of the true rest that God is referring to here. And that's why God says in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You know, that there is another rest that's going to come. And so God's purpose for his people was, you know, not just to give them a little bit of real estate in, in the promised land. And so as the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians, he's like, you can go back to Judaism and you can go seek the promised land and, and all the promises that are, that are there. But, but really, the rest that they had is pointing to a greater rest and and to God's rest that is the fulfillment of what Israel experienced. And, and I think for Christians, even for us, we need to be reminded of this, that our rest is not on this earth. It's not something that we will find completely here upon this earth. I, we, our hearts yearn for these things, do they not? Do we not seek a sense of peace, a sense of, of rightness, a sense of shalom, in which everything in our life just fits together perfectly? Right. And I think we spend a lot of time trying to make that happen. We we reorganize our schedules. It's like, well, if I can just figure out how to parent correctly or if I can just get my finances under control or if I can just do this or that, you know, then, then life will be as it should be. But but the reality is that that we will never, ever experience that uh, rest completely while we were here upon this earth. So, so what is the rest that he's talking about? Well, look at verses 3 and 4. And, and actually, the writer to the Hebrews gives another Old Testament reference, which sort of explains his definition of God's rest. He says, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, Verse 4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, the citation that he has here is from the creation account back at the beginning of, of Genesis. Genesis 2, verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he has done. You see, the point here is, is that the rest that God offers us in salvation is the same rest that he took at, at the completion of creation. I'll try, let me see if I can explain that. In Genesis 1, God labored for six days 
and, and rested on the seventh day. We know that. The seventh day, the, the, the Sabbath, was a symbol of God's rest. And it was an anticipation to Adam and creation of an eternal rest yet to come. So if you want to put this in biblical theological terms, what you would say is, is that the Sabbath day had an eschatological trajectory. It was pointing us to the end. It was helping us to see that there was something greater that was coming. And so the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. By the way, the Sabbath wasn't instituted with the law. The fourth commandment doesn't say, you know, keep the, the seventh day holy. He says, remember, it's pointing us back to, to creation. But the fourth commandment, which was engraved in stone and placed in the Ark of the Covenant, was a constant reminder for God's people of a future rest, of a rest that was coming in the future. Now, some would say that that rest is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Right? And, and that's true. But not yet in all of its fullness. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, it says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for um, the people of God. And, and of course, through Christ, we enter God's rest into fellowship with him, into communion, into God's family. We experience his love. And through Christ, we enter into that rest, but not yet in its fullness and final expression of rest. Actually, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. Revelation 13, or 14, 13. And as you turn there, let me just say that, that that full and that final rest of God really awaits us in the final consummation of all things at the end of time. Revelation 14, 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may what? Rest from their labor. You see, God's rest is, is yet to come. We do see a fulfillment of this in Christ to some degree, but, but one day God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. No more heart attacks. No more cancer. No more COVID-19. It'll be a time when there will be no mourning. But not yet. Now we still battle with indwelling sin. We still struggle with the flesh and the devil and, and the world. You know, our faith is, is being tested. It ebbs and it flows and it rises and, and it falls. But one day we will experience that rest. And that's why the Sabbath day was not abolished at Jesus' coming. It, it remains to remind us, as we saw in verse 9, that there is a Sabbath rest for God's people. That every Lord's Day, every Sunday, we are reminded that something better is yet to come. Uh, Richard Baxter, he put it so well. He said, use your Sabbaths as stepping stones to glory until having passed them all, you are there arrived. You see, from... Creation to consummation, that is to the end of time, there will always be a Sabbath on earth to help God's people 
to prepare for that eternal Sabbath. So every Lord's Day, every Sunday, as we gather together to worship the Lord, it is a reminder of the rest that we will have one day. I think it's interesting, even in our little congregation, we're represented by at least 10 different communities around Andover. Uh, we come from everywhere, all different types, every walk of life and everything. But that is nothing compared to the rest that we will have one day. One day we will gather with people from every tongue, tribe and nation who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will worship the Lord our God. And so even every Lord's Day as we gather, it reminds us of that hope that we will have of the rest when we will come into heaven and we will be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. But I think we need to understand, and, and in one sense this is a warning to us as well, it may be that, that you come to worship on Sundays and you think it's dull. You, you actually find that it's rather boring. You know, maybe for some of you kids, as you're at home, you're thinking, okay, we've got to do the worship service again. And as your parents pass out the song sheets, you're sort of standing there and you're just sort of singing half-heartedly because you're just feeling like we're just going through the motions. And, and, and we need to be careful. This should cause us uh, to, to look at our, it should cause us pause to, to look at our lives and seeing what it tells us about our own hearts. Because so no matter how poor the preaching may be or how indifferent or imperfect the singing may be, we should prize the opportunity of preparing ourselves for that endless Sabbath day as we gather each Lord's Day to worship Him. And that's why in verse 11 he says, Let us strive to that rest, that Sabbath rest, which is yet to come. Let us make sure that we will not be excluded from that final rest like these unbelieving Israelites. You see, for the Christian, life with the hope of eternal Sabbath is a great joy. So why must we strive to enter that rest? Well, as we saw in verse 11, that is a command that he gives to us. Strive. And, and that word strive means to work hard. It means to apply yourself diligently. And, and to some people, as they read that, they think, whoa, now wait a minute, this is a contradiction. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that we are saved by grace through faith, right? And so, what do you mean, strive? Does, it, does this mean that we have to work for our salvation? Not, not at all. I think one thing we have to remember is, is that the author is basing his entire exhortation to his readers in the Exodus wonderings. And there were many Israelites who left Egypt and yet who never made it to the promised land. Many who died in, in the wilderness. And in the same way, we as Christians, as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. It's like leaving the spiritual Egypt. And we now are heading to the spiritual promised land. We must press on. We must keep believing. We must guard our hearts from the evil sin of unbelief. In other words, let us not take that rest that eternal rest that we are looking to for granted. But let us earnestly strive to live in harmony with God and, and to do His will and to obey His word. I mean, I think really a, a great uh, a passage of Scripture that just makes this very clear is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verse 12, Paul really is saying the same thing that the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words, you're, you're, you're pressing on to obey, not just when I'm around to watch you, but even when I'm not there, you still seek to, to obey. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then he goes on and he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Or you could say, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, if, if striving was up to us, we wouldn't make it. Because oftentimes our faith grows cold. We, we rustle. It, it, be, it becomes weary. But, but what Paul is reminding the believers here in Philippi is that it is God who, who gives you the desire to obey. It is God who gives you the strength, who gives you the ability to obey. You, you could put it this way. It is God who gives you persevering faith. It is that sense, that's what this striving is. It is that persevering faith. And it is a gift from God. It is the result of God's work in us. And so, as he says in Hebrews 4.11, that we are to strive so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, that word fall there should cause us to look back to chapter 3, verse 17, because the same word is used there. And, and with whom... Was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And in other words, don't be like the Israelites who had the gospel preached to them, as we saw here in verse 2, and yet they acted in unbelief. Don't be like them. Why? Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, God's word came in its heart-searching character to the Israelites who perished, but it found them lacking. But he's saying here to these Hebrews, likewise, it is the same word that comes to you and searches what lies within you even revealing the motives and the attitudes and the intentions of your heart. And he says, don't take God's word lightly. It's, it's not a dead book, but it's living. It's active. It's actually doing something in the hearts of the people. And so he says, so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. You see, the point of these two closing verses is really to say to them, take to heart what God has spoken. Because God's word is living and powerful and all creation is laid bare before God in his word. You see, God sees what's in your heart right now. God knows what lies beneath the surface of your life. You know, you can clothe yourself with all kinds of outward appearance. You know, it seems like as a culture, we're all about image now, right? It's, it's really not even who you are, but it's who you want people to think you are. And, and, and that's what he's saying. You, you could even make people think that you have that appearance of Christianity, and you could fool everyone around you. Actually, you could even fool yourself. But God knows who you really are. 
And as a matter of fact, he has given you his word so that you can know who you are. So you're not deceived yourself. Because see, the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceptive and that we oftentimes think more highly of ourselves. And that's why many people think, I'm not really that bad of a sinner. I'm not that bad of a person. But that also means that if you think that God could not love you because of who you are or what you have done in the past, that God already knows everything there is to know about you. He's not surprised. And so when he tells you, come, turn from your sins, believe in me, he knows who you are. He expects you to come to him as you are. But I'm here to tell you, he will not leave you as you are. He will forgive you. He will forgive your sins. And he will make you into the glorious image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says to us today, today, not tomorrow, not two days from now. None of us is guaranteed one moment more in our lives. We never know when we could get a death sentence, when something could happen, a car accident. We could get COVID-19, whatever it may be. So he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but strive to enter because an eternal Sabbath rest is waiting. And the only thing that will bring you there is persevering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which he has given to you. Striving will not give it us to heaven, but we will not get to heaven without striving because it is evidence that God is working in our hearts. And so God is calling you today to come to him, to bow your knee and to give your life to him. Let's pray.